0: welcome to her story the history of southeast asia told from her perspective we'll discover historical figures matriarchal societies and contemporary female icons and maybe learn about ourselves along the way i'm your host agas ramirez this is part three of the series on meet me at the manila carnival for 31 years young women from across the country vied for the title of miss manila carnival then Miss Philippines, navigating racial prejudice and standards of beauty, and becoming an integral part of the nation-building process. Now, we'll talk about the end of an era, 1927-1939, to the final years of the pageant before the outbreak of the Second World War. Thank you. Beauty contests are part of Philippine culture. They say, if you want anything to succeed in the Philippines, hold a pageant or a cockfight. Vicente J. Carlos, Philippine Tourism Secretary, 1994 After almost two decades of pageantry, the Carnival Queen, now Miss Philippines, had become embedded in national consciousness. Pageants were being held in every province, and smaller pageants still in villages or barangays, Beauty had become attached to regional representation and the bigger idea of a nation, and at the center of it all, young women who found themselves under a very bright spotlight. In 1927, carnival administrators did something new. They tapped leading high schools, colleges, and universities for candidates. One of these universities was Centro Escolar de Señoritas, co-founded by educators Librada Avellino and Carmen de Luna. A tangent on these two amazing women, as I'm not sure if we'll have the opportunity to talk about them elsewhere. Librada Avelino was the first woman to earn a teaching certificate from the Spanish authorities in 1889. When she was younger, she studied advanced Spanish, among other things like mathematics, geography, and piano. She then put up a girls' school in her hometown, but had to leave the area during the Philippine Revolution in the late 1890s. She put up another school, but when the Americans came into the picture and required English to be taught in schools, she had to learn it to stay open. So Librada and a classmate from the Assumption convent, Carmen de Luna, sailed to Hong Kong to study English. Carmen was also a licensed teacher and a member of Liga de Mujeres Filipinas or Philippine Women's League. In 1907, Librada and Carmen co-founded Centro Escolar de Señoritas, the first non-sectarian school in the country. They were joined by Librada's cousin, Margarita Oliva, and together, they sought out other women within their network to teach. Librada and Carmen would remain partners in running the school until Librada's death in 1934. That's when Carmen took over as director. In 1945, it became a university, making Carmen the only woman in the country to have a university for both female and male students. As far as I can tell, based on their paternal surnames, neither woman ever married. A side note here. In the previous episode, I mentioned that in 1912, the carnival started with an educational conference, and among the speakers was the director of the girls' central school, Libra Veorino. This is from Genevieve Clotario's book, which she in turn found in a January nineteen nineteen twelve 1912 article in the publication Philippine Monthly. Now that I think about it, the 1912 article probably had a typographical error, and they really meant Libra de Avellino, not Libra Avellino. Okay, so in 1927, with contestants drawn from some of the biggest secondary and tertiary schools in the country, there emerged the New Miss Philippines, Luisa Fernandez Marasigan. Lusing, as she was more fondly known, was born on January 10, 1910, in Gumaca, Tayabas, now in the province of Quezon, making her just 17 years old the year she won the title. She and her elder sister, Concepcion, were said to be internas at Centro Escolar de Señoritas. I assume this meant that they were undergoing some sort of professional training? Because their parents were far away, it was actually Concepcion who gave her permission to join. Among the judges that year were sculptor Guillermo Torrentino and painter Fernando Amorsolo, who are both national artists. There's a lovely photo of Lucing with outgoing 1926 queen Anita Noble with Miss Visayas Lourdes Rodriguez and Miss Mindanao Nora Maulana. Miss Luzon de Laurel wasn't in this particular photo. A note on Lucing's escort. According to Alex DiArcastro, An organization called the Bachelors Club sent scores of photos of possible escorts to Lucing. It's giving Amelia and Princess Diaries, too. She eventually picked Guillermo a godson of the Centro Escolar director. It seems like everyone knows everyone, which makes sense because they all belong to the upper strata of society. Lucing was effortlessly stunning, by the way, and was a very popular Miss Philippines. Her appearance at the floral parade attracted large crowds. Her school staged a series of musical tributes for her, and in a speech at one of them, she said, To my mind, the National Beauty Contest, which was held for the second time in the Philippines, should not only be an occasion for the outburst of admiration for physical beauty. It should also be an occasion for the cultivation of a higher form of beauty, the spiritual beauty, when the representatives of the various provinces vibe with each other not for their personal aggrandizement, but for the honor of the country we all love. Here, it's clear what the pageant meant to these young ladies, and to the audience, how inextricably linked it was to the idea of a nation. Past queens also had thoughts about this. Remember in Part 1, we talked about Pura Villa Nueva Calao, the very first Filipino Carnival Queen? In 1931, her daughter Maria Villanueva Calau joined and won the competition, becoming that year's Miss Philippines. Pura didn't talk much about her own experience until 1934 during an interview with the newspaper La Vanguardia. And she was honest, breathtakingly honest, even, she said, and this is from Genevieve Clotario's translation of the Spanish interview. For me, The most attractive carnival was that in which my daughter, Maria, was elected queen because it was a carnival that could properly be called Filipino. Although it is true that in my time, there was more carnival spirit and more costumed people wandering the streets, although it is true that the costume I wore from the crown to the shoes was all of the Philippines, in that celebration of joy, those who had the most fun and also took advantage were the foreigners. And yeah, that tracks, because if you listened to that whole debacle she had in episode one, you would have hated it too. It was controlled by the Americans, and at the time, the queens had to contend with a lot of discrimination. Maria Villanueva-Cala, for her part, finished her degree of philosophy at the University of the Philippines one year after being crowned queen. While in college, she wrote for the campus newspaper The Philippine Collegian, served as secretary of the UP Student Council, President of the UP Women's Club, Secretary of the UP Debate Club, and a member of the UP Writers Club. Then, as a Barbour Scholar at the University of Michigan, she earned her Master's in Social Work. She later earned a Doctor of Philosophy degree in Social Sciences from the University of Santo Tomas, Magna Cum Laude. Possibly, probably, she was able to do all of this because of her background. Her parents obviously supported education and the idea of her having a career. Her mother was a journalist and suffragette, while her father was a congressman, historian, and at one point, the secretary of the interior and local government. In 1934, she married Dr. Pepito Katigbak and changed her name to Maria Calao Katigbak. She became a longtime colonist for the Manila Times, taught at both the University of the Philippines and Philippine Women's University, and was the president of the Girl Scouts of the Philippines. In 1961, at age 49, she became the third woman senator of the Philippines. She authored the Truth and Lending Act of 1963 and the law that led to the creation of the National Commission on Culture. She also served as the chairperson of the UNESCO General Conference of the Philippines, governor of the Philippine Red Cross, and head of the Board of Review for Motion Pictures and Television. And I thought I was busy. There's a biography about her called A Charmed Life by Monina Alarey Mercado. if you want to know more about Maria Kahlo Katigbak. Side note, I originally thought that the pageant only skipped two years, but there was actually no Manila Carnival in 1910, 1919, and 1928. In 1911, the carnival was held but without the pageant, so that's a total of four years without the Queen's. By 1930, writes Genevieve Alba Clotario in her book Beauty Regimes, Filipinos promoted the Philippines as a land of beauty queens. The power of beauty pageants seeped into Filipinos' everyday lives in the archipelago and across the diaspora. And again, if you haven't yet, do check out Beauty Regimes, A History of Power in Modern Empire in the Philippines, 1898-1941, to by Genevieve Alvaclotario. It's available on Kindle, and it really goes far beyond the Manila Carnival Queen pageants into Philippine embroidery and Manila's high fashion designers, so it's really important to take a look at that. Before we end this three-episode journey, I want to discuss a few more queens who don't really get talked about much outside of niche books, family memoirs, and academic lectures. In 1929, law student Pasita Ong de los Reyes was handpicked to represent the University of the Philippines. Pasita, or Ting, was a pretty big deal. She got the highest mark among 115 applicants to the state university. She was popular on campus and was named the Secretary of the Junior Philippine Senate, an elite group of top debaters. Her win as Miss Philippines was reported internationally. Her father actually learned that she won through a newspaper in Paris, where he lived at the time. After the pageant, she went back to school and ranked 7th in the 1934 board exams. During World War II, she supported guerrilla war efforts along with Miss Philippines' 1934 Clarita Tan Thing Ting had a long career in law after the war— she was married twice, but it doesn't look like she changed her name, which I imagine was rare at the time. Miss Philippines 1935 Conchita Sunico was a socialite from a young age. She was one of the first Filipinas to be seen in strapless dresses and to make costume jewelry chic. But during the war, she joined the Volunteer Social Aid Committee. She helped run a hospital for the wounded, organized community kitchens for the hungry, and managed a secret mail service. From Manila residents and their relatives imprisoned in Capas and Cabanatuan, she was eventually awarded the Legion of Honor by the Philippine government for her work in the underground. She later founded Carilagan, the international fashion group, and became tourism minister. In 1939, which was the very last year of the pageant, the winners were Miss Philippines Illuminada Tuazon, Miss Luzon Estrella Santos Fabon. Miss Visayas Adela Planas and Miss Mindanao Erminiana Kahulis. At this point, interest in the carnival was waning. According to Alex Di'Arcastro. Castro, attendance had already dropped and it was becoming harder to sustain the carnival. There were several factors. First, and most obviously, the war had begun in Europe and that does put a damper on festivities. Second, corporate and private sponsors dropped out and provincial participation wavered. Third, and this is something we've talked about, the carnival was linked to celebrating Philippine-US friendship. The Commonwealth of the Philippines was founded in 1935, and after three years, Filipinos likely felt that it was time to move on. So the government suspended its funding of the Manila Carnival in 1939, marking the end of an era. Now, some 80 years later, Pageantry remains a captivating and controversial topic for Filipinos, often sparking debates on nationality, gender identity, and national pride. Beauty pageants now tend to highlight things beyond beauty, that is, advocacy. But as we've seen in our history, that's nothing new. Our queens have always stood for something, and that is why perhaps we, as a nation, remain as captivated by pageants today, just as we were in 1908. Thank you for listening to the Meet Me at the Manila Carnival series. I had a lot of fun doing this, and I hope you liked it. Thank you to our patrons, Yati, Charlie, Shireen, Matt, Raymond, Christina, Jennifer, Xiaomi by Milish, Beverly, Alisa, and Lawrence. If you want to join the Patreon, you can give us little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and access to bonus episodes. We have... An interview with Hadi Patra on the Minangkabau Matriarchal Society, Maying Tafan and the Chrom Clone, Niagide Pinate, the Harbor Master of Gresik, Queen Soriothai and the War Elephants, Paso Marquez Benitez and Dead Stars, the Rise and Fall of the Achenese Queens, 1641 to 1699, the Portrait of Dara Rasami, and the Women of No. 14, Lebulif. As a side note, a new episode is coming out for my second podcast, Shake, Rattle, and Record. It's a fan podcast about the longest-running film franchise in Philippine history and other local horror favorites. I'll put an excerpt for episode 5 at the end. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pod. That's Her Story S-E-A, pod. There's so many more stories to tell and we're just getting started. This podcast was hosted and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again next time. salamat! One of my favorite horror movie tropes is The Final Girl. Very simply, it refers to the last girl or woman alive to confront the mysterious killer. In doing so, we see the conclusion of the story through her perspective. The term final girl was coined by Carol J. Clover in her book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender, and the Modern Horror Film. The original definition was very narrow because it came from 70s and 80s slasher films. A final girl is a part of a group of young people. She is somehow morally superior to her peers because she's a virgin or doesn't drink or do drugs. She rises to the challenge of a final confrontation and defeats the villain. She is the only survivor of the massacre, and she'll probably be killed or institutionalized in the sequel. Early examples of final girls are Sally from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Lori from Halloween, Tina from A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Alice from Friday the 13th, all incidentally childhood staples for me. Oh, the good old days of VHS. Later, of course, final girls evolved to the likes of Grace in Ready or Not, Danny in Midsummer, and my favorite, Erin in Your Next. In Shake, Rattle, and Roll as Aswang, we meet a sort of Filipina final girl in the form of Portia, expertly played by Manilin Reyes Sort of, because she doesn't fulfill all the requirements of the final girl, but she does tick off many of the checkboxes. A spiritual final girl, if you will. Portia arrives in a small town via tricycle with her best friend, Monica, played by Ana Rosas. This is Monica's hometown and we see immediately how warm everyone is towards their guest. Among the welcoming party are Monica's mother, played by Vangie Labalan, and the town chief, played by Rez Cortez.